Wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and we have arrived at episode number 44. And my guest this week is the amazing and fascinating ring veteran, Irish Mickey Doyle, who we will get to in just a moment. Want to talk about a couple of things on the horizon, one of which I am um, thrilled to report on because I finally got a look at it myself. I've been talking about it for a few weeks now, and this I'm, I, I want to be a gift for old school wrestling fans. Part one of my in-depth breakdown of the territorial era of pro wrestling is now featured in the current issue of Inside the Ropes magazine. That's issue number 27. Uh, it's the December 2022 issue. It's got Jim Cornette on the cover. Great picture. Um, I would say the best way to get it right now, especially if you're in the U.S. or in North America, is probably to go to their website and order it at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. They have it in digital and print form. Um, if you wait for it, because I know Barnes & Noble carries it and some newsstands uh, here stateside carry it, they're usually about a month behind, I've noticed, a few weeks behind. So if you really want to get your hands on it, I would suggest ordering it. Um, I would also maybe kind of want to push the print copy uh, edition more heavily just because included with the article is an actual uh, fold-out map poster of the territories of North America. I did the original version of that back when I worked at WWE for SmackDown Magazine in uh, 2006, and it's been it's popped up a lot of places since. This is a new, improved, revised, corrected, more thorough and complete edition. So if you've always wanted to have a comprehensive map of the territories, get this issue. It's part one of two just because there were so many territories to break down. It's hard to kind of fit it all in one article. So in part one... I did. Uh, I covered the Northeast, the Southeast, the Midwest, the kind of mid-southern area, and um, Puerto Rico, the Caribbean area. And in in the next month's issue, the January issue, it'll be part two, which will have uh, Texas, the Western United States, Hawaii, and Canada, basically. So we've broken it up into two. And what I've done is it's a it's a spotlight on each particular territory with the major buildings they ran, the major stars they had, the years they were in operation, the promoters that ran it, the whole thing. Uh, I want to mention, too, as I gently Josh and Rib, uh, the editors of Inside the Ropes magazine, my byline was accidentally left off the article. So, uh, so that's another reason why I'm publicizing it here to make clear that I am the author 
of the of of this territory article that's running as a two-parter in Inside the Ropes magazine. I'm very proud of it. I strongly encourage you to pick it up. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you think of the map. Let me know what you think of the breakdowns. Um, it's a perfect time to do it now with the Tales from the Territory series running. So very proud of that. And uh, it's going to start making its way out there in the weeks to come. Get your copy now, InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. I also want to plug the upcoming, I'm going to plug it in a very vague way, the the upcoming 50th episode. Believe it or not, it'll be here before you know it. The 50th episode of Inside the Ropes is coming in January. And uh, I'm making plans for a very special guest for that 50th episode. Don't want to say who it is yet. Going to keep you in suspense. But the interview is in the works. It is going to be happening soon. And um, once it happens, I will let you all know about my very special guest for the 50th milestone edition of Shut Up and Wrestle. But for now, let's talk about the 44th edition, which we're on right now this week. So Irish Mickey Doyle is a great veteran of the squared circle. Uh, fans, particularly in the Midwest and in, in parts of Canada, uh, might remember Mickey very, very well. He's got a, a, a biography out, which he co-wrote with Tim Keenan, which we'll be talking about in the in the interview. He's got a lot of great stories about working for the Sheik and in many other places. So I won't waste any more time. And I'm going to take you to that wonderful interview that I did with Irish Mickey Doyle right now. It is my pleasure this week on on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome someone who I had the privilege to get to know a couple of years ago while I was working on the Sheik biography, Blood and Fire, um, because he's somebody with some very unique stories of a very unique uh, career trajectory in the business. He broke into the business, talk about baptism of fire, literally, uh, broke into the business in the Sheik's territory, big time wrestling uh, in at the end of the 60s. And uh, he ha- he really had a, a, an, an illustrious and long-running career in the business, worked every territory that you can imagine. Um, he uh, A couple of interesting stats. He had his first match ever with Classy Freddie Blassie. So that's an interesting first match to have. He can also claim that he was the opponent for in the third match uh, of Sheik's nephew, Sabu. And he also helped uh, in the early careers of people like Al Snow, and Scott Demore and other people in who kind of broke in in the Ontario, Michigan area. He's also got a great a great book out, a biography called Everybody Loves Mickey, uh, that was co-written uh, with Tim Keenan, who I know very well, who's a great writer in his own right. And I'm I'm so happy to have him here. And of course, I'm talking about Irish Mickey Doyle. Well, Brian, you you're flattering me and. Uh... I'm a humble guy, but thank you for all the kind words, and um, just uh, fun to be here tonight, and we can talk about whatever, just whatever <laughs> we want to talk about. That's, That's the way great. I like to do it. That's how I like to do it, and and just, and, and I also want to say, too, I mean, I, I've had a few other guests here before who who were people that I talked to for the Sheik book. And, you know, it's, it's, it's my chance also again to say thank you for, cause the stories, as you know, the more time goes by, the more people that aren't with us anymore and stories go away and, and it's so valuable to preserve them. So th- thanks for doing it then. And thanks for doing it now. Well, that's, it's my pleasure. And that's the, 
that you mentioned that there's a, like, I think about from that whole Detroit territory, when I broke in in 19, end of 69, 70, I think Fred Curry's alive, myself, Sweet Daddy Seeky, and I don't believe any other guy from that era is alive anymore. So that's kind of, <laughs> kind of yeah. the end of the lines coming. You know? it's, well, but, you know, I mean, I, I've thought a lot about that just because of having done the book and everything. And, you know, even when I was doing it, uh, the amount of people that I could really talk to that had firsthand knowledge, um, it wasn't, there weren't many. And and there were less by the time I finished the book than there were when I started the book. Um, I'm sorry to yeah, say, right. it's right. crazy. Dave uh, Dave Brzezinski, though he was Supermouth Dave Drayson, his stage name. Yeah, he was one of the Sheik's managers at the end of the Sheik's career. He's still alive. He's he's younger than me. Dave's probably I don't even know in the '60s. I guess Dave would be, but he's. He's still alive, and you've—I think you've talked to Dave before on your. Oh show. God, yes, yes. Dave was one of the the first guests that I had, uh, because I mean, yeah. I, I can't even tell you. I—it's I, not even an exaggeration to say that I wouldn't have been able to do the book without him. I mean, I I could have done it, but it would have sucked. So I'm gl- I'm really glad that I had him involved, just because uh, I mean, he was so. Uh, plugged into the, the the that territory from such a young age and knew so many people uh, you know um i mean as you know he was he was he was kind of taking pictures as a teenager he was he was a, a fixture of Cobo hall and and on the mention of your book that is a great book i have gone through that book i went i read the book and then i still read it i keep it i keep it in the bathroom <laughs> that's where i keep it when i'm home and i've uh I still am fascinated by all the history of the matches in uh, Maple Leaf Gardens and Cobo, and I, I'll go through the matches at Cobo, and I'll remember, oh, yeah, I was on that show, and I'll try to remember what happened in the Sheik's match if I can. Sometime, most of the time I can't remember, but that's the fascinating part of that book. There's so much. You've got the history of him from, from birth till death. I mean, the whole everything's, everything's uh, encompassed in that, in that book. That's a great book. Thank yeah. you. Well, that's what I was trying to do. And, you know, <laughs> it's funny that you say that you keep it in the bathroom because I remember uh, Greg Oliver told me that Bobby Heenan told him that about one of his books. And I remember it was thinking about how that was, you know, in, in its in a weird way, that's a great compliment, you know, <laughs> so thank you. That's that's where I do my best reading for real. And my my <laughs> wife's always saying, uh, I'll see you in an hour. You know, I said, I got to go to the bathroom. I'll see you in an hour. Because I do my reading in there, and that's been my book for the last six months. Just the stats in there, just fast. I'm a statistician, whatever the word is, stats guy, and I enjoy the, like I said, going through the Maple Leaf Garden and the Kobo and the certain date and the certain time, and it's just it's really good, good memories. Great yeah. book, buddy. Thank you so much. You know, there was that that whole record of of Maple Leaf Gardens, the 127 singles matches without a loss that the Sheik had, which, you know, you can do that when you're booking it, but still I wasn't sure that that was, that number was legit. And, and I looked as closely as I possibly could. And, and that number is legit. Yeah. I, he was always there. I mean, that Maple Leaf garden, it was, that was a, we would do Cobo on a Saturday and we would do uh, Cobo hall TV on a Sunday morning out in Walled Lake, Michigan in a really tiny studio then it'd be on the Maple Leaf Garden, and the Sheik was always main event in, co- in the, the gardens. It was always the Sheik. But he'd always drew, too. I mean, he always drew it. Everybody, 
The only guy they really screwed, I think, working a main event was Zulu, the mighty Zulu. <laughs> you know, he came out of nowhere. He had that, you know, freakazoid body at that time. Everybody's big now. but So, and I think they paid him $200. That's that's the story. He got paid $200. I think they drew a good crowd, you know. And just they, You know, they screwed everybody. Let's be honest. They screwed everybody. <laughs> everybody got screwed down the road. But Zulu really got screwed. He should have got at least a grand anyway, I would think, you know, but $200. Right. That was well, probably the- his probably was- that was probably his best payoff to to date, anyway. Though truthfully, but still, my goodness. The f- well, the yeah. feeling I got with with Sheik just from all the people I talked to was that, you know, uh, obviously he had the reputation for being for not paying well. That that was something I kept running into. But what I think was more the truth was he took care of you if he liked you and if you were if he knew you were making a lot of money for him, he was going to take care of you. And if not, well, then it wasn't the best place to get paid. Absolutely. Um, he did like me, though. I never made no money, but he did like me. And he always, he would get me booked in St. Louis for the keel in the summer and stuff like that. He would, you know, he would get me booked. He didn't do that for everybody, every young up-and-coming kid. So he did um, He did get me booked in places, which was cool. But, uh, want- yeah, the payoffs were sketchy, a lot of sketchy payoffs, that's for sure. Well, Les Thatcher told me, uh, I think it was either on the show or when I was talking to him for the book, he said uh, that, you know, because Les is from Cincinnati area. And so, you know, and when he was home visiting family, um, they kind of talked him into working a show and he was reluctant because he was on vacation and he did it. And he said like about a month later, he got a check in the mail for like $15 or something. And then he said, "I'm yeah, ne- that that's right. a, I, I'm never doing that again." Is pretty much <laughs> what he said. <laughs> yeah, but let me tell you a quick story. Okay, kind of the same storyline. I, I I broke in in '70 and I went on the road for what did I go on the road for three or four years? I came back in '75, I believe it was. And for some reason, I got over big in a match one night. I worked it was me and Igor against the Lanny Poffo and Angelo, and I got over big and. Uh, I just got over, and, the, and Eddie Jr., his son, was booking that. And Eddie said, damn, that was that was good. You, the, What I did was I, I beat Angelo, and I jumped up on the second ring rope, and I was the crowd was going nuts in Kalamazoo. It was a TV taping. And they started pushing me in the small shows. I'd get main events, the small shows and everything. And I was making 75 to 100 a night, which was great. I was happy then, 75. And uh, Greg Valentine called me from California, this is one of my bad moves in the business. And he goes, hey, we got uh, Louis Tillet's book in the old Tampa gang, because I had worked Tampa for about six, seven months in 71, 72. And he says, Louis wants you. Come on down or come on out here. And I was thinking, damn, you know, short trips, California, pretty decent payoffs. So I, I gave my notice. And that plays into what I was going to say. I had worked the show. I had worked the show for the Bear Man in London. That's another, the Sheik always got me booked for the Bear Man. And it was a really good house. And uh, the Bear Man usually paid me 100 Well, I gave my notice after I already worked the show. And the time I got, you know, I went to L.A. And they mailed my money to me. And what Les said, I got 25 instead of the 15 You know, the Sheik <laughs> was pissed because I left. And, um, yeah, he screwed me too, but... But what are you going to do? They were pushing me, and that was a d- dumb move because I went to L.A., and I believe it was like two weeks later, they lost their NBC television primetime Saturday night. They lost it and went oh, on the man. 
the Lucha Libra channel, and then the houses Louis left to lay left, and you know the promotion was never the same till McMahon came in and kind of put them out of business. Yeah, but yeah, the same thing like West, the money thing, and but he was mad at me, so I understand that too. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, uh, look, you you couldn't have known, right? I mean, it, it must have seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Yeah, it did. I, th- I thought I was going to be making maybe $500 a week, and they, the longest trip was San Diego, which is 151 way. I mean, that was a piece of cake anyway. And sure enough, <laughs> they lost their TV, and that was it. So at the time, it seemed like a good move, but in retrospect, it was a really dumb move. And by the way, the, the match that you mentioned, the one with, uh, I think you said it was you and Mighty Igor against the Pafos, right? right. Angelo and yep. Lanny. Yep. That that match yeah. is is out there on the internet. I've seen it. I don't know if, you, if you've seen it out there. It's on YouTube, I think. People can actually see that match if, if you're interested in, in, because I've seen it. And, and, and it's true what you say, how it was like, um, you know, you could tell that it was one of those moments where people just were buying into you, you know? Yeah, it it worked that night. The whole shtick worked, and but I you know I got caught up in the emotion of the crowd. It wasn't like I was uh, pretending. I mean, I was pumped. You know, yeah. Angelo put me over like a million bucks. It what it was. We did a match and they beat us. But Saul Weinegraf was their manager and he he screwed me. You know, I got screwed. He hit me with the cane. One, two, three. So I challenged Angelo for five more minutes. The people got pumped with that, and then he put me over like a million. And as soon as I beat them, they went nuts. And I, that, that adrenaline from the crowd, I just, you know, you jump up on the ring rope and it was crazy. It was just, that was, I never forgot that. That was quite a, that was the best drug in the world that night, standing on them ring ropes and the fans going crazy for you. But like you said, yeah, it's, it's exciting, exciting business, even regardless of you make money or not. It still was a really cool, uh, cool adventure to be in that business. Well, you know, for anybody that has ever been a performer in any way or, or done anything in front of a live audience, in my own small way, I, I've done, you know, public events and things like that, where anytime you have an audience that is that is really eating out of the palm of your hand and loving you and cheering and or yeah. laughing or whatever, it is very true. It is like a, a drug. It is a rush. It's an incredible mm-hmm. feeling. And when it happens you want to duplicate it, you know, as much as you can make it happen more and more, you know, it, it's, de- there's definitely a lot of truth to that. It's just like you, uh, like, I'm going to be real honest with you. I had 14 surgeries from the business and I've had, I developed a pain pill addiction, which I went to rehab, got help, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you're always catching that high. You're always trying to catch that first high. And that was the same thing, you know, that mm. adrenaline rush from the crowd and same thing when you're addicted to opiates, it's like always trying to catch that same high, that first buzz from it, you know, it's <laughs> like, it's a drug then the, the adrenaline's like, a drug. let's talk about your stuff for a minute. Let me talk real quick. Sure. So in the year 2000, Al Snow took me on the road with the WWF when he was working there and you were working with them and like, I think for about six, seven years, right? Starting yeah. in 2000. I started in correct? 2000. Yeah. February, 2000. I, I wouldn't, I wonder if February 2000. Yeah. I, we must've crossed past that time. Cause the, I know this is all going to run together for you, but the, the, <laughs> the tour he took me on for a week was, it was in, uh, let me think Pensacola, Pittsburgh, and the raw was at the Georgia dome on a Monday night. And I, we must've crossed paths. You know, I remember, 
I remember that George Dome Raw. I definitely remember it because it was a big deal that they were running it because WCW just two years before it had their biggest house ever in that building with Goldberg and Hulk Hogan. And it was like um, almost like, a, you know, they really wanted to make a statement. But the the thing about it, I don't th- I don't believe I was at that one because the, the thing is, I, you know, I was mainly in the office. I, I went on the road but not every week to TV. I I would go out, you know, every now and then they would send me out on the road, you know, maybe once a month, maybe once every other month, depending. But so, I mean, I, you know, it's possible unless he brought you around, you know, to, to the office or to the TV studio or something like that. No, it was just, uh, it was like four weeks, four nights we were on the road. And then, but I remember the Georgia Dome was cool. They had, some of the Atlantic Falcons who were playing then in the audience, which they always do that, right? Some right. celebrities, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a big show. I think they drew about thirty thousand there that day. It was pretty impressive. Yeah, it yeah. was. I remember that it was huge. Didn't you also work with Al on a? I'm trying to remember on a WCW show um, in yeah, Co- Cobo, in Cobo, Cobo right? Hall. Yeah, in Cobo. That would have when- been like. 91 92 and i think they drew 500 people that night and flair was on the show all their stars were on the show and al and i were the opening match and i swear to god we had the best match because some guys you know there was there was there was nobody there it was like you could hear echoes it was sad but uh, yeah yeah, i worked the opener we had a real kick-ass match but um and the booker that time was grizzly smith who we come to find out is a, was a little sketchy too, right? Yeah, so more than was, a little. Wow. Yeah, he was a yeah. he was he was a, a monster kind of. It's crazy when you think about, um, you know, I you wonder how much was known at the time, especially with people that that yeah. worked with him and everything, or people look the other way and whatever. It's 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 yeah. a crazy crazy thing. But um, yeah, that's a sad one. You're you're right. People must have known. They had to have known that there was some real. Awful things going on, Jesus. Especially the older generation, you know, you know the people that were his his peers. You know, I mean, they had to know people that were his age or you know that were working with them. I mean, so they had to know that something was really off with that guy. I mean, God. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. I don't even know. You know, what do you say? He just uh, wasn't a good person in life. That's for sure. He was he was tainted. Right. I think wasn't he wasn't didn't Bill Watts bring him into WCW because Bill Bill Watts used him in Mid South too didn't he? Probably probably did, and and Watts when he was young, he probably Grizzly was tag teaming then because Watts broke in and like I remember looking at old wrestling reviews Watts was in the early sixties if I'm not mistaken or the mid sixties so yeah. Grizzly was on the road then so I'm sure. He was one of his boys, you know, in a not a <laughs> not a weird in a weird way. Just yeah, he probably right. he just him one in. of the people that he took care of, basically. You know, wherever yeah, he, he took went. Care of for, but yeah. um, you know, I want to ask. But, oh, go on, no, go on. No, I, I I didn't have nothing. Go ahead. You, you no, I was ahead. just going to say that um, that you know you were talking about how dismal that that WCW crowd was at Kobo it seems to me that um you know you hear about all the sellouts and the incredible crowds that Sheik was putting into that building over and over again even if it wasn't a sellout it would be a close sellout but then you see you know the other the big companies i don't know they always had a 
a tough time um, selling out in Detroit. You look at some of those WWF shows and WCW shows. A lot of them are terrible, just terrible. Even with, even with Hulk Hogan on the card, they couldn't seem to draw. People were just groomed for that 60s, 70s, the chic. That was just so cool. And he would have at least 10 matches. (laughs) Right. I mean, some of them might last two minutes, but he would always have, bring, you know, guys, all the Canadian guys, Dewey Robertson and, and that whole crew. And, um, he would have matches, you know, he'd have good matches. And then of course he, he was always last and he, people knew he was going to bleed and they just wanted to know how he was going to win that night. You know, everybody said, how's he going to do it tonight? But they tease you, you know, right. he was such a great tease on TV. They'd work this angle with, and Bobo, I could say, but let's just say, uh, Bull Curry, see, Bull Curry's coming back with the Sheik, and people go, damn, Bull Curry, he never loses. He's going to probably beat him, but, you know, of course, something always <laughs> happened. But he he was just a good, uh, I can't think of the word, but uh, like a psychiatrist. He's like, he was yes. a psychiatrist. He knew how to work the people, and they were so groomed for the Sheik's promotion. I think that's why, you know, they just, they see these big muscle-bound dudes now who were really good, but... They just miss the old, they miss the guys, you know, who looks like heels, Killer Cox. Now there's a heel, Dick Murdoch. Those guys look <laughs> right. like heels. They weren't bodybuilders. They were just big guy. Don Morocco, Don Morocco was a big dude though. But I mean, he was a bulky heel and he bumped for you. And people like that stuff. And WWF really didn't have that. They had, uh, what did they have? They had like uh, well, they had superhero. Piper. They had Piper as but their. Piper, right. Piper, Piper wasn't a big freak freak as well i think he went on the gas and he got some muscle for the first wrestlemania but he uh yeah roddy was different though he was he every he would have worked in any era i think you know because he could talk the way he did yeah you know it's funny what you're saying about those those old school heels is so true i think the the difference i mean some of those names you mentioned cox and murdoch and you know those were not people that wanted the crowd to like them. You know, what I find like with a lot of heels is that it's very tempting that you want the people to like you. Even, even if you're a bad guy, you want yeah. them to kind of think you're cool and cheer for you. And there's something about you. Maybe you yeah. just look, you look really cool. You know, like even, I even say this about yeah. M- MJF and AEW, who's like one of the hottest heels in the business now, or even Roman Reigns, they they still have a coolness that makes people want to like them. But those guys back yeah. then, nobody wanted to like those guys. You know what I mean? Oh, my God. I was a fan for, you know, I was just a kid going to Kobo and Cox was there. And my God, you know, I he was just this brawler type guy, you know, just this guy you'd see fighting in a bar room. That's what he was. And I didn't like him. You know, he he grabbed the radio out of Mark Lewin's hand that the kids from the Mercy Home sent him and he broke it. And I thought, damn. You know, they did a they did an angle on TV where Mark Lewin got a really, you know, a little cheap radio, which was just all BS. And then Cox grabbed it and stopped. And boy, they they drew a big crowd just on that. You know, can you imagine doing that now? People would laugh about that, wouldn't yeah. they? But it it yeah. was so easy then. But yeah, but that's right. The Cox and them guys, they didn't want you to like them. Holy smokes. You know, I want to ask nobody you. Liked them. I want to ask you about that about the Walled Lake uh, studio there that you mentioned because that kept coming up too when I was working on the book. So for people that don't know that uh, it wasn't for very long, it was for a couple of years, a handful of years. The Sheik was doing his TV tapings in a town called Walled Lake, Michigan, at a TV studio. Wait. 
which I found out now, I don't know if you know, is currently um, an old age home. It's like a it's like a retirement home or or more like an assisted living home. But oh, um, wow. <laughs> yeah, but isn't that weird? But even though they didn't use it for long, everybody seems to have fond memories about that place. So what, what was it like working at that studio? Well, first of all, they could use it now for an old folks home for the wrestlers. You know, that would be a good <laughs> idea. But it was out in the country, and it was real, I mean, in the summer anyway, it was real pretty, and, and birds are singing, and you could go out the back of the studio and just walk around between, excuse me, between matches or something, and there was, it could hold about, it was just tiny little place. They must have added on for the old folks home. They would, they would have, it could hold maybe 40 people in three sides. Let's see, let's see, there's only two sides to the crowd seating. They had the, the old time camera on the wheels on the the one side, and Lord Layton and his desk were on the same side. And then, no, wait a minute, three sides had people, but maybe 40 people. It was just, I don't know, there was something really fun about that. Going there Sunday morning, and we're all in the same dressing room, and there's guys telling stories, and a lot of the guys are hungover because a lot of the old older guys, they go into the, you know, from Kobo, they go get shit faced somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the next night, they're a little little staggering but they're funny so i got a kick out of it i just when i first broke in that was my first match at wall lake and i just got in the corner put my stuff on and listened to the guys talk and it was just funny just funny stories and you know hearing their stories and i'm here with all these big stars that i saw on tv it was like overwhelming for me it was so cool but the building was just small and the crowds were they got with it and it was just a nice Country, like I said, country area it was out surrounded by trees and everything was on an old dirt road. You had a, you had a, let's see, I think it was on, well, you wouldn't, nobody would know these streets, but you, you drive down a country road, then you make a right to get to the studio and it was down an old dirt road is like, just, it was a good atmosphere. That's probably the allure of it. I, I would say that's what I liked about it. It was just nice. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, uh well, I actually, I mentioned Blassie, but you mentioned that you had your first match at the studio. And I remember you told me the Blassie story when when I talked to you when I was working on the book. But I don't know if the story made it in the book. So I was hoping if maybe you could you could talk a little bit about that first match you had with with Blassie of all people. Um, well, before the match, he just I remember Louis Klein, who's the guy that trained me. I, do you remember Louis Klein by any chance? Him and Red Bastien used to team up the Bastien yeah, brothers back in the yeah. right. He, yeah, he was he was in in the capital territory. He was uh, Lou Bastien. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, him and Red, but he was the man that trained me and, and you know got me going in the business. And he just said, "Here's you working with Fred Blassie," and I thought, "Oh my goodness!" <laughs> and Blassie just goes. Don't worry, kid, it'll be easy, or something like that. And I remember we got in the ring, and I just looking around, and I was like, my heart was beating, you know, like a like a motor. And uh, we locked up, and he goes, grab a headlock. So I grabbed a headlock, and I remember someone in the crowd goes, open. I wasn't Mickey Doyle, then I was Mike Doyle. Someone in the crowd yells, open your eyes, Mike. I had my eyes closed because I was... <laughs> So nervous, I didn't want to look at the people. <laughs> so, oh my god! But but Blasi gave me that hold, and I think he might have gave me something else. But I remember he threw me out of the ring. And says you're going out of the ring. Be careful! And I took the bump, and he, there was a chain that held the ring post to a another part that was really a weird ring setup. Uh, but there was a chain, and he 
he threw me into it and he said, block yourself. And I didn't block it. And I, I hit the chain with my head and it busted my head open, you know, wow. unintentionally. And then he beat me with, uh, I think, a spinning neck breaker. So let's fast forward, though, now about six months later, the Sheik sent Killer Brooks and a couple other guys up to do TV for the WWF or WWWF. And we did it in Philly and in Hamburg. And then the first night in, I believe it was Philly, we did uh, six six matches. We did I did six jobs. But Blasty was one of my matches. And I'm in the corner, and the ref comes up to me and goes, uh, but he says he remembers you, but he's he's got to beat you right away because he's coming back in the garden with Pedro. Pedro had the belt then. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, is that cool, eh? First of all, he remembered me, and he's just telling me, you know, just uh, he can't give me nothing. And I said, Jesus, just tell him to. I said, just tell him to throw me around like a rag doll. And I took a, some crazy bumps for him, and then he just beat me. But that was cool. I thought Blasty was a good uh, class act. You know, classy Freddie Blasty, he was. And that really was that was really the tail end of of his career as a wrestler. Because I know even when he was working Pedro, that was had to be like. 72 73 and then right yep. after that he, oh. he he stopped and just started he just became a manager gosh he probably was what probably his mid-60s then i'm thinking maybe. i don't even maybe. think you know what i think well part of it i remember obviously i always heard because i i met him briefly when i worked at wwe because the mcmahon's you know they always loved him and took care of him and and even you know i would hear a lot about him so apparently his his knees got really bad he couldn't really, you know, uh, wrestle anymore because his knees were bad. But the bigger problem was, you know, where he was really hot was California. That was his territory. And I guess oh, yeah. Yeah. apparently there's a law out there, some kind of regulation that you can't wrestle uh, over the age of 55. So I think it was when he hit 55. Wow. So he was about so he would have been about 55. Yeah. that where, where he basically said, well, this is my this is where I make my money as a wrestler. So. I'm not going to just go out on the road at 55. So, so Vince senior made him an offer, come out here and I'll make you a manager. And that was that. Yeah. Well, he, he must've seen a couple of bucks cause he was there for WrestleMania, the first WrestleMania and all that. Right. Oh God. Yeah. Sure. He so stayed he, there yeah. as a manager. To, well, I, I mean, as a manager, he was there till 86, <clears throat> but even after that, he he was working in the office. I mean, quote unquote, working. He had a job where they paid him, and he showed up yeah. in the office for a number until he was um, until he just got really old and and went home. But they still they continued to pay him to the end of his life. That was nice. That was yeah. That was that was that was classy on their part. And I can't remember how long ago did he die, Classy Freddie? Do you remember? He died, and uh, I'm pretty sure it was 2002. Because I remember I I wasn't at the company long and I met him. I've told a story on here once before, but I met him briefly one time in an elevator in the office. And I know he used to do um, he used to dress up like Santa Claus for the Christmas party. And he would also do it at the kids daycare center that the, the WWF had. But I never I never really got to spend a lot of time around him. But I remember when he died, um, it was a very big deal to the McMahons. And I remember I worked for Shane. Yeah. He he was my boss and we were, we worked in the magazine department and Shane insisted when he died that we had to put him on the cover of the magazine and do a whole story, even though he knew honestly, realistically, we were going to take a hit on sales by doing that. But he said, I don't care. We're putting Freddie on the cover. And we did. 
They had a daycare center right in the office in the <laughs> yeah. building there. Yes. Um, so it wow. was called it was called Titan Tots, which people that work there will remember. But it was um, so, you know, they had their corporate building right in Stanford. And then down the street, they had their TV studio on Hamilton Avenue. And right next door to the TV studio in the parking lot, they had this daycare center. And it was wild because you would have. um you know, people there that were the kids of not not really the kids of the wrestlers because they were always on the road, but of all different people that yeah. worked in the office. My my kids went there, and you know, um, it's not there anymore. It's not there anymore, but it was there for a long, long time. That was, that was nice. That was cool. They yeah, looking out family orientated, right? Well, we, we, it would have been nice if it was free, but it was nice that we got a discount on it Uh because, because they even had uh, Uh uh, kids there that were not families that were not WWE employees. Anybody could go there, but if you were an employee, you got a discount. Yeah. Well, that was nice. Yeah, that was, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a heartbeat in there, isn't there? (laughs) Yeah. If you got to look for it, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Well, poor old Vince, he's had his problems lately, hasn't he? Over oh, the last man. Six, seven months. Yeah, really. I mean, I mean uh, what is there to say? It's just sort of like, I guess, you know what it is? Everybody eventually has to pay the piper, you know? <laughs> doesn't yeah, matter who you are. Yeah, yeah you're right. It all, it, if there's some shady going on, it usually catches up, don't it? Yeah. And uh, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the, him and his wife, how that works anymore in life. That's got to be. Well, I don't, um, you know, I, I think that's a, it's an odd situation because, you know, um, they're, they're, they are still married, but I think it's pretty much an, an open thing right now that they don't, they're not really together. I mean, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm breaking any, any news to say that, you know, I, you know, I think it's one of those things where uh, it's almost like, you know, Bill and Hillary Clinton, where <laughs> they're still yeah, together, but yeah. they're not together, you know, and it's just not I, I don't think they want to have to go through a big public breakup. You know, she she has her political career and he has whatever he has going on. So, you know, it's best to yeah. just kind of let it be what it is. But um, but and, and speaking of that, You're though, right. with, with the whole WWF thing, I'm interested because uh, you mentioned that you worked a few tapings for them and that in that time period in the 70s. Did that happen a lot? Was Sheik sending people to Vince to work? Um, you know, right after he sent the four of us, they sent me to Tampa. So I was gone for four years. So I don't really know what happened after that. If guys went to do, uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. Cause yeah, I don't, I'm stumped for words here. I, I don't have an answer. <laughs> well, one, one of the reasons I was wondering is that one of the mysteries I, I would try to unravel with yeah. the book was the relationship between uh chic and vince because i could never tell if they liked each other or not it was this weird kind of relationship that seemed to be on again off again and the chic you know basically stopped working for him completely by about the early 70s didn't do any more appearances and i and and i I always tried to kind of get to the bottom of to as to you know, what their working relationship was. Cause then you also had um, later on when the Sheik was really going down the drain with big time wrestling, they were sending WWF people into, into his territory. Yeah, you, right. you had Bob yeah, Backlund. Backlund that. Right. Yeah, I remember Backlund would come in. Um, Eddie Jr. Who 
I kept, he actually, I, I live in the upper peninsula of Michigan and, um, he did some shows in the early 2000, Eddie Jr. did, and he brought in all these guys with exorbitant uh, guarantees and plain money, and he had this money man. But Eddie and I would were together for a spell, and you know I was part of it, and he was paying me off to do the promo part of it. And uh, he was telling me about how his dad. This is what he told me: he hated the he hated the McMahons, mm. and Eddie Jr. just blasting the McMahons, just nothing but negativity was coming out of them concerning them. So that's what I, um, that's what I was told by the kid, but the kids was a little punchy too. Eddie Jr. was a little punchy, mm. you know, he, so I don't know if, you know, I don't know a lot of stuff come out of his mouth was truth. So I don't well, know. I, didn't the Sheik, didn't they, wasn't he part of that riot in Madison square garden or is that, yes. that was, he was part of that, right? There was, well, yeah. That, there was a riot th- that happened and and supposedly he got banned from the garden or or he might have even been banned by New York state uh period or yeah, I don't I, I don't think it was a lifetime ban that's the thing everybody makes it out to be a lifetime ban i think it was a limited time but i think there were other reasons why he never went back to new york because he had his big run with bruno there where they were selling out yeah. all over the place that Excuse me. Then he came back. His last match at the Garden was right after the Bruno program. He had a match with Haystacks Calhoun, and that is where the riot happened. Where supposedly oh. the way the way I understood it was, he did something that he always used to do. It was really not a big deal for him. Where he would take one of the photographer's cameras and he would smash the camera. He, he used to do that a lot, and he did it. And for some reason, it pissed off the people that night. And they rushed the ring, and oh. a little old lady wound up getting hurt and trampled or whatever, and and it made a lot of waves. And I think they they basically uh, said we we would like you to not come back. <laughs> yeah, that's in the book. That's where I learned. I, yeah, that's right. I read that in your book. Yeah, um, yeah. Let's. Uh, that would have been a heck of a night to be, be there. <laughs> would have been. <laughs> yes. Would have been fun to see that. You know. There's another guy, Haystacks. Haystacks got a lot of main events in his career. He. He, you know, I liked Haystacks because I met him when I first broke in, and he was a nice enough guy. But he, I remember, he was always got used by women. That's what I remember. Always wow. used by women, and I, um, they thought he was making a lot of money, and some hotsy totsy from like say Kobo would up to him, and you know, he wasn't. He couldn't get easy, women easily. Let's be honest. You know, it wasn't <laughs> the easiest thing in the world was because just the way it was, but. I know he had one wife who used him, and um, mm. and he must have seen some money. Haystacks, wouldn't you think? Some money. He had to. I he mean, was he, he was a he was a main event everywhere he went. He had to be making some he, kind of money. And especially back in that era, if God just say he was making a thousand a week in 1970, God, that would be a lot of money. And I don't know what happened. I just that's what I was told by. You know, the old timers would tell me that he was used by women divorced. You know, they got him to marry him and then in the divorce they got money and right. um that's what I was told anyway. But I he was always nice to me. I liked the guy. I know he wasn't in great shape towards the end of his life. He had I know he I think he had a, a leg or maybe both legs amputated, diabetes kind of thing. And I know he was not in good financial shape at the end of his life. I think he was living in a yeah trailer or something but you know 
But I mean, that was years after he had retired. So, I mean, I can't imagine that he was not, you know, that he was hurting for money while he was, you know, one of the most well-known wrestlers in the business, really. Honestly, he was like, he he, he was almost like Andre the Giant before Andre the Giant. Yeah, yeah, he was. You know, another thing, what happened, I remember, you remember Judo Jack Terry? Give her her Judo Jack Terry. He he was an old wrestler, but that was Haystack's manager. And if I'm not mistaken, that's what I just forgot that. I think Jack Terry was taking a cut of his money because he ah. he first got him booked, and then he he clung to him like a like a damn eel, you know. He and he that's what happened. That's what happened. Jack Terry was getting some of his money too, all the way till the end. I'm not mistaken, until Jack Terry died. That's that'll do it. I yep, just well, it. Yeah, that'll do Bleach. it. There's a there's a weird story in in Blassie's book. I know um, uh, when a friend of mine at WWE, Keith Keith Elliott Greenberg, he worked with Freddie on Freddie's own book uh, right before he died, not long before he died, and he told us st- just a really messed up story in the book about haystacks where he said that he had a dog. I don't know if you ever heard this. He had yeah. a little tiny dog, oh. and he accidentally. Oh, he, which I don't think this was the smartest thing, but I guess he apparently he used to sleep in the bed with the dog, and you know oh. this man, this man was oh, no. uh, you know was six hundred pounds or at least close to it, and he accidentally one night rolled yeah. over and he squashed the dog, oh, and that God. was the end of the dog. Oh yeah. boy, that's yeah, a, that's a sad story, and that probably that dog was probably like his kid, you know. Who knows? Like his children. So, oh my goodness, yeah. I heard another. Uh, yeah, why not? We're talking the story about Haystack flying to Japan and he had to use the bathroom. Did you hear the story? It's kind of sick. I know, I know yeah, some could... of the stories of Andre in Japan, so I'm wondering if this is a little similar. To well, that. no, this he couldn't he couldn't fit in the bathroom of the airplane, and he had to use a mail sack to relieve himself. Wow, that's a that'd be hard in life, you know? I no, mean, I know it, it, it is. It, it, it's, it's, um, something that I, th- I don't think any of us could really understand because you can't ever escape it. You know, everywhere you go with Andre, you know, you'd always hear about how he'd have to buy, you know, two seats on the airplane and things like that. And, and, and in Japan too, I, I forget where I read it. It might've been in Hulk Hogan's book or something of how, Everything is so small in Japan. So, you know, he'd be in the hotel and he couldn't fit in the bathroom. Like you were saying, he wouldn't yeah. be able to fit in the toilet stall or uh, things like that. Or the beds would be too small. And a lot of times he would have yeah. to sleep. I think I remember hearing that he would sleep corner to corner on the bed because, you know, otherwise his legs would be hanging off the end of the bed. It'd be awful. I remember in '78, I was in Hawaii working, and Andre came through for about a month, which was great because he was a blast. But I just remember in Hawaii, usually flying three or four times a week to the islands and flying with him. Every time we'd enter the airport, we they put us in the VIP because it would just be a throng of people running. You know what I mean? Just a yeah. throng of people running to the and but it was the VIP till we got in the plane and. But that was a blast on him in the plane. Christ, we do a little shot to Maui, which is like what forty-five minutes, and he'd he'd do six or seven beers on the just <laughs> going to Maui. You know, it was, <laughs> it was a riot. Uh, and I'll never forget one time. Tolis was that was a great territory at the time. It was Tolis, myself, Morocco, Stud, Buddy Rose, Andre, and a couple other guys. I can't remember, but I remember getting on the plane when the midgets came in too. The midgets came in when Andre was there. 
and Cowboy Lang's coming on the plane, followed by Andre, followed by Morocco, and, and I'm sitting next to Tolis, and he goes, these people not, wouldn't believe this. These people, these people in the plane are not going to believe this. You know, the, <laughs> the humor of that whole thing. You got little Cowboy Lang with his hat on, and Andre, and then uh, Morocco, it just... Uh, amazing you know what a great business <laughs> yeah a great business. I, I think about that all the time there's just nothing else like it the things that you see and just the, the things that are just considered just normal if if you're in it you don't yeah. even think you don't even yeah, think right. twice you know until until you realize yeah, right. what it's like to other people you know <laughs> yeah it's bizarre to them probably but boy yeah you're right and you you were right there doing it too so you know <laughs> There would be, right, there would be those times where I would be like, is this really happening right now? <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. or, or you, uh, you know, you, you say something that would get a big reaction in, in, a, in you know, with, with wrestling people, but you say it around the wrong people and then they want to, you know, run you out of town on a rail. So sometimes you have to learn to know your audience, but the, the wrestling business can be true. such a strange such a strange place. I don't know how else to describe it. It's just we used to say in the office, we had a saying that um, and we didn't make it up, but it applied. And we would say to those who know, um, no explanation is necessary to those who don't No explanation will do. <laughs> That's well said, right? Yeah. <laughs> to, to the to the marks that think they're smart, right? <laughs> As that uh, saying goes. Well, Al Snow used to have this thing that when he was doing well, he'd say, you know, a lot of these guys, if they wasn't for wrestling, they'd be in prison. And there's there a lot of truth to that, too. You know, a lot of the guys, I mean, Donnie Fargo, he did some serious time before he was a wrestler and he found wrestling and he had a parlayed into a great career. And there's there's some more that would have been in jail, but wrestling probably saved him from that, you know? Oh, yes. I, there was I... a guy. Yeah, no. I was just gonna say, Donnie, Far Donnie Fargo. They should make a movie about him. Holy Toledo, he was interesting. I talked to. Now he he also worked as Don Carson, right? Same guy. No, no. Don Carson was a different tall blonde guy. Don Carson Fargo okay. was like a bodybuilder, and he he was around in the he worked Madison Square Garden with Jackie Fargo, the fabulous Fargo brothers. Yeah, Fargo was he was right. everywhere. The right, because I I talked to. I talked to Bobby Davis, who was their manager. That's what I was thinking of. Oh, yeah, Bobby yeah, Davis, yeah, who right. was he was their manager back then, and I, you know, I did one of the right. last interviews with him, and he spoke very, very uh, highly of the both of them, actually. And I think Donnie, he was saying, he actually helped get him into wrestling. I think he even told a story of finding him. You're talking about that he did prison time. I think he yeah. he found him somehow and said, "Look, I can get you on a better, you know." life path if you do this yeah that's possible because fargo was fa i was in five territories with fargo and i did you know we were friends you know wrestling friends but he would tell me he was a cat burglar and he would tell me how you be a good cat burglar how you you go you you sneak into the house and you close your eyes for 10 seconds and then when you open them you can get acclimated to the dark now i always remember that trying to go around a dark house and you know when i'm home i always remember those words of wisdom from Donnie. He was That's a, a great guy. way to it's a great way to get yourself shot. Oh, absolutely, but that <laughs> right? was he was a cat burglar. He was giving us the ins and outs of being a cat burglar and I thought, Jesus, this is fascinating. But fascinating see stuff. Nowhere else. Where else are you going to meet people like that on a regular basis than in wrestling, you know? <laughs> There's nothing yeah, else like it. Just, it. It's that's what I'm saying, it's uh, unbelievable. 
to those who know, there's no explanation. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. You, you can't, and, and it and it even uh, crossed over even into the office side of things because we had so many people at the office that either had been wrestlers or they'd been on the road in some way. And, and, and so there was, a, I don't know if it's like that anymore now, you know, over there, but I know it was when I was there, there was a strong connection between the road and the office. It was a, a lot of the same kind of mentality. And it's almost like, I always tell people, the people that I used to work with there, even now, I left there 15 yeah. years ago and we still all keep in yeah. touch and we still have reunions and things. I can't think oh. of any other job that, I would do that with, but it was like, uh, it was almost like uh, what I say a lot is it was like, we were all veterans in the same war. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. You're right. That's you're right. It's like I've, they have these, uh, well, the, the only, the people died that was running them, but we do these ones down in Alabama, the mobile reunion and right. all the guys that worked the South. And that was good times. That was nice. That was just really a cool thing. That's the last time I saw Fargo it would have been in, 2013 and then he died shortly thereafter but yeah you're right it's it's like family you know it's like let me ask you a question how was your relationship with vince how did that go well i it it was never that that bad until uh well Mm -hmm. i i'm (laughs) they interviewed me for this the documentary that vice tv is doing about vince and it's coming out in december and uh which i'm not sure when this interview we're doing is going to get posted but it might be around that time i don't know if i'm gonna have the greatest relationship after that comes out but but no i never had yeah they asked me about you know working over there and things like that i i never um i spent uh, some time around him and um i i really worked with his son shane shane was the one who knew me, you know, on a first name basis and everything. And with Vince, it's kind of weird. I don't know if you ever spent a lot of time around him, but when, uh, you know, he's not, I would talk to him and we would have a great conversation and it would, you know, I would think all of a sudden I was his favorite guy. And then I'd see him again three weeks later and he'd have no idea who I was. You, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I never, I spent a little bit when snow took me on the road, I talked to him at the in the Georgia Dome, and he was asking about because I told him I came up and did some jobs in the seven early nineteen seventy one, and he was asking me about that. And then I he goes, "What do you think about this?" And I didn't have a response, and I got like tongue tied. And he probably thought, "Well, this guy's a dipshit." <laughs> you know, I I didn't know what to say because well, no, he asked me how does this compare to the old day territories, and I I didn't even know how to respond because it was like being on a movie set. You know, right. How could like. you respond? It's so different. But one thing that I found about yeah. from from talking with him, one thing I did find, which I was surprised about because I didn't think this would be true. He he is very nostalgic. He likes to talk about the old days. He likes to think about the old days. He'll bring up names from the past. Uh, you know, because everything I always heard about him was I always thought, well, he's always looking ahead. He's always looking ahead to the next show. He doesn't really have much use for the past or nostalgia, but I think the older that he got, the more he started reminiscing. If if you, it, you know, uh, the couple of times that we spoke, cause I got to interview him at length a couple of times, he was very open and excited about talking about the old days when, when he was, you know, young or even as a kid. And he, he, he was much more open to it than I thought he would be. You, you know, that's funny you say that. Cause after that whole episode and maybe 
a year later, I was thinking, boy, I really screwed that up. And I thought, you know what I should have talked about? My travels on the road with Dr. Jerry Graham. Oh, yes. I know he would have, that's, he would have loved that because I did so, oh, my God, with Jerry, you know, that's a whole other story for a book, the traveling on the road with Jerry Graham, you know. And I know they were, I think they were pretty close when he was young and his old man was running it. I think him and the doc were, uh, I think the doc over, you know, oversaw him. Yes. If I'm not mistaken, I think I heard some stories. Yeah, and I, his dad wasn't so thrilled about it, but yes. Yeah, that would have been the conversation to go to because I could have related. He could have related to what I was saying. I could have told him some of the time we were all, what, on a road and Jerry coming through Ohio on I-75 and Jerry went to take a piss and he rolled into Lake Erie. You know, stuff like that. You can't make it up, right? <laughs> no. Just no, and it's, speaking of people that would never be able to survive outside the world of wrestling, he's he is high on that list. I don't know what how somebody <laughs> like him – could have ever survived in the in the quote unquote normal world. Um, it's it's he, crazy he, to he, me. I know, I know what happened to him because I was in L.A. and the doc was all. I don't know how much more time we got to talk, but here's what happened. About Ten more minutes. We started. got time. Okay, I went to L.A. in '75, and maybe a month into the promotion, Ernie Roth comes out there, and he's basically babysitting Jerry. They're trying to get Jerry clean for one more garden run. Mm-hmm. Um, Vince was trying to, you know, see if they could make some money. So Jerry was clean. He wasn't drinking. He was staying in a hotel in Santa Monica with Ernie and he was swimming every day and, you know, jogging on the beach and he was still big, but he was tan. He looked good. So this is about a month into this and they send him to New York and we never saw him again for, I went there April, May, June, July. I, for seven months, didn't see him. So it was right before Christmas, and we're doing TV at the Olympic on a Wednesday night, and here comes Jerry, and he's just gone. You know, he's just a mess. And I go, Jesus, where you been? And he goes, he always called me Louis Klein, Louis Klein Jr. He says, Louis, I'm, I've been here, I've been there. I said, well, how did the New York thing go? And he didn't tell me. Mm. But then I heard from the office that it just, it, you know, he did a garden show apparently, and it didn't work out. He was, he didn't care about him. You know, it was he was an old man, then older man, and it didn't work. And so, so he stayed in LA the rest of his life and he was living on a pension from the army. I heard and possibly social security. And these young kids that I, I had trained these kids out there to be wrestlers, right? A couple of kids. And he, they were looking now, after uh, him. They it, were, would, would Kurt Brown be one of those kids? Yeah. Yeah. Vandal okay. Drummond. Kurt right. Brown. Vandal that's, Drummond. That's where I was going. Yep. Sorry. To, right. I didn't mean to spoil your story. I just, I just spoke no. to him not long ago. We talked a lot about the doc. Yeah, no, I'm glad you said that. Cause he's a good guy, Kurt. Um, he, they babysitted the doc till he passed away and they buried him in a military cemetery somewhere in Southern California. That's what Kurt told me what happened to the doc. I love the doc. You know, he was a crude, different man, but God, you gotta love the guy, Dr. Jerry, right? And and what was was crazy was another one of those people that and I guess it was because everybody did have a fondness for him. He I don't think anybody ever got more second chances than that guy. I mean, third chance, fourth chance, oh. fifth chance. Even Vince Jr. wanted to try to use him in some capacity uh, as something. Uh, he, he never could figure out what. Yeah, yeah, like maybe a manager or something. But they're always worried he'd go off the deep end. You know, he'd <laughs> he would just. I remember. In the, what was this, 84, New York came in there, first show in the Olympic, and uh, 
they called me up right away to work, which was great because it was a good payoff that night. But the doc comes and one of the local people brought some catering in that night, and there was a, a big barrel of beer. And the doc was shit-faced when he got there. Well, what do you think he did? He pissed in the barrel of beer. Just, uh. You know, that was one of those deals. He just took a leak right in the beer, beer, beer the old beer belly, beer belly, berry polka. Or what would that be? <laughs> Man, you know that is no, the, yeah, the yeah. beer barrel polka, right? But I mean, yeah. talk about yeah. talk about self destructive. Wow, doesn't get worse than yeah, that. He was, but the doc was the doc, man. Everybody, you know, he was a doc. That was it. And you know, but before I mean, you know, before we do finish up, I I did want to ask a little. Well, I want to ask you about two things. One is okay. is how you got um, connected with Al Snow. How did that come about? And, and and then I also want to ask you about the book, too, because I want to let people know how they could get your book. But but let's talk about Al first for a second, because he's another person. I, I, I got to know him working at WWE. He, he was always very friendly. I interviewed him also for the Sheik book. I always found him to be one of the nicest, most down-to-earth guys that I came across in the business. Yeah, he Al was one of the nicest men I've ever met in my life, and he's done well. He's doing well. He owns that promotion in Louisville, and he's yeah. doing good. Um, we got together, let's see, I came back from California in 1984, and when I came back, the first person I looked up was Al Costello, the original kangaroo. He was working as a guard at a building in downtown Detroit, and he was still doing his gimmick, still wrestling the indie shows, and he goes, he looked at me and he goes, Mickey, my boy, because I knew him from when I broke in, and he goes, I need a partner, I need a kangaroo, you up for it? And I said, of course. So we were doing the kangaroo thing for about a year and we were doing some shows in Ohio for a guy named Jim Lancaster, who was Al Snow's trainer. And Al was just breaking in. He'd been in the business, I don't know, six, seven months. And uh, for one night, Jim, uh, wait a minute, what was it? No, I did a singles. I was, in a, I, was, I was doing the kangaroo, but I did an individual show for Jim. And he put Snow and I together just as a, to see what would happen. And, you know, we gelled pretty good the first night. So I think we were partners. We were... We ended up calling ourselves the Motor City Hitmen, and we teamed up for a good, God, I'd say five years as partners, four to five years, and then we worked against each other a lot of times in all the indie shows around Detroit. But, but Al was just—he's a, a nice man, a really nice man. Yeah, what I think a lot of a lot of younger fans don't know about him, and uh, what what they don't know, and why why I, eventually I'm going to get him on here too, is that you know a lot of the younger fans they remember him from. ECW or coming to WWF and head he, the head gimmick and all that stuff. Oh, but yeah. but that Al goes, but uh, it was great. But Al goes ba- goes back way before that. I mean, Al goes back to the territory days. I mean, he started out. It's yeah. still in that in that era, yeah. and he he was around yeah. a lot of a lot of stuff before that. I think he was already wrestling for maybe uh, over maybe 10, 12 years by the time he really hit it big like that. Oh, I would say so. Yeah, he used to do TV tapes for Gagne in Minnesota. And right, right. All that. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, Al definitely paid his dues before he finally, what was it, ECW is where he, no, Smoky Mountains. Where Smoky he, Mountain, like, right, for, Smoky Mountain. Or not the first, where things kind of were shaping up for him. Well, over there, they, right, they had him teaming with Glenn Jacobs, who, who was Unibom at the time, and uh, we yeah. know how that turned out. Yeah. Well, 
turned out. Well, wait a minute. What do you mean? How did it turn out? You mean the success of both them guys? Or yeah, and I mean, wrong? no, nothing oh, went yeah. wrong. No, but what I mean is, you had, you had, and I'm sure that the reason that that Jim probably put Glenn with Al was to learn something from him, you know, because he was he was this green kid who had a lot of potential, and then he went on to become one of the most famous uh, characters that WWE oh. ever had. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows Kane, right? Even right. if you're not a wrestling fan, you've heard the Kane or Undertaker. That's Everybody knows those people, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I do want to ask, the uh, before we do wrap up, I want to I ask you about the book a little bit and just to let people know how they could get it or just what it was like. Because I know Tim and I talked a little bit when, because we were both sort of, I think he was just finishing up the book with you at the time that I was starting the book with The Sheik. So we would talk a little yeah. bit now and then. What what was that like? Doing the book, I was. Yeah. It was a lot of work. I mean, he would give me questions, you know, to answer, and just uh, just was all me stuff, writing stuff from memory of my career and my life, basically, because I talked about growing up and, you know, prior to wrestling, I had a job in a mental institution, and that was a whole chapter in itself because that was like a wrestling story working there it was really interesting and crazy yeah it really was holy cow that's where i met my first wife so just to tell you that she wasn't crazy she was a runaway she she just she was running away from a nightmare of her life you know and i don't blame her but that's where i met her wow <laughs> so it's a that's a whole yeah that's a whole chapter it's interesting but that book yeah the book's interesting and if anybody's ever interested they could just google or whatever uh Mike Doyle six zero six at yahoo dot com. That's they could get in touch with me that All way. All right, and you know what? Interested. Yeah. Um, once I once I post this, we, uh, I'll I'll definitely be putting the links up online for people who want to get the book and who are interested yeah. in it. It's a great story, and and you've had. I mean, I mean when I say um, long running and illustrious career, what I mean is. You know, the people that were lucky enough to be able to work for as long as you did, make a living, yeah. you know, like like work in so many different places. Um, yeah. I call that a success. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. I was never a big star. I know I well, like no, a, but that's what I mean. I, I don't that that I think yeah. is you know, some people get to that status, but but people that are able to to stay at it for so long, keep doing it and, and make money doing it in an era when you had a lot of different places where you can work. Um, and a yeah. chance, I think, I think it's, it's a great achievement. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'm, you know, I paid my dues and, um, learned a lot, actually just life lessons on the road. That's for sure. A lot of life lessons. So yeah. Thank you. And thanks oh. for having me on brother. My pleasure. I did. Yeah. That, Thanks for once again agreeing to share some of these great stories and memories. That's that's what the show's all about. Yeah, I love hearing your stories too. You had a pretty cool career too, man. You're still rocking it. That's great. Yep, I'm finding a way to to sort of uh uh make at least a little bit of money out of something that I love and I'd probably do for free anyway, but don't tell anybody that. All right, I won't. <laughs> no, you're doing great and it's a great it's a great book. It's Sheik's book. Everybody buy it. Thank you. Thank you, Mickey. Okay, Brian. Take care, buddy. You too. There you have it, folks. My conversation with the great 
Irish Mickey Doyle. I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope you keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle in the weeks to come. Speaking of Shut Up and Wrestle, I just want to make mention of a quick correction from the top of the show. I want to make totally clear that uh, I know I said episode 50 of Inside the Ropes. I misspoke there. I meant episode 50, of course, of Shut Up and Wrestle, this very podcast. It is six weeks away, and it will have a very special guest. It'll be, uh, of course, airing sometime, I believe, in mid-January. But in the meantime, we have lots of other great guests on the way to Shut Up and Wrestle. I want to say that next week for episode 45, I will have the legendary photographer George Napolitano, Brooklyn's own George Napolitano. You may have seen him recently in that amazing viral video with The Rock that was out there from the red carpet premiere of Black Adam. He will be my guest next week. Also upcoming on the podcast, another of my close personal longtime WWE Titan Tower friends, Mr. Marco Torelli, a graphic designer for WWE. We worked on the magazine together, and he did a lot of other projects there. Lifelong fan, amazing guy. You're going to love what he has to say. Uh, Tough guy Torelli on the way. Also another, speaking of photographer, uh, another legendary wrestling photographer, the Dean of Wrestling, writers, journalists, photographers, whatever you want to say, Mr. Bill Apter will be finally making his way to Shut Up and Wrestle. I finally got him, folks. Bill Apter is coming to Shut Up and Wrestle. Where can you find the show? Of course, our website is suawpod.com. You can also find Shut Up and Wrestle uh, wherever you get podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Podcast Addict, uh, Google Podcasts. Apple Podcasts, wherever you usually go, you will find this show. I also encourage you to join our Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. We are going strong. There's always great content there. Come on down, make your voice heard. It's a fun place to be. I love to kind of directly address the listeners of this show in the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Um, The Wrestling News, Arcadian Vanguard's um, fantastic new... uh, Still, I still consider it new. Uh, daily morning wrestling newscast hosted by Mike Sempervivi. I'm I'm excited and thrilled and loving every minute of being a part of this team, bringing this product to you every morning. So check it out if you haven't already at thewrestlingnews.com. If you're interested in picking up copies of my book, my biography of the original Sheik, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, Go to Amazon, pick it up. We've got it in digital. We've got it in print format. We've got it in audio format available there. If you want an autographed copy of the book, reach out to me at Solomon at yahoo.com, and we'll see if we can make that happen. Um, I'm always happy to do that. I still have some copies available to do that with. Uh, As I mentioned at the top, Inside the Ropes magazine, if you want to pick up copies of that magazine that I write for, it's InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. If you want to pick up Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the granddaddy of all wrestling magazines, which I am proud to be a regular contributor to, you can pick that up at PWI-Online.com. Also, If you want to check out the PWI podcast, why not? I'm the co-host of that as well, along with recent Shut Up and Wrestle guest, um, Al Castle. You can find the PWI podcast, again, wherever you find your other great wrestling podcasts and podcasts um, in general. Uh, 
If you're looking for me, you can find me on social media on Twitter and Instagram. I am Brian R. Solomon. Uh, you will also find my Facebook uh, author page, which is Brian Solomon Writer. And if you go to any one of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my very special author website on the World Wide Web. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that if the Nightingale could sing like you, they'd sing much sweeter than they do. So long, wrestling fans. 